Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now, your inside look into the best of Vice. It's Wednesday, October 24th. I'm Sophie Casas. Today we're talking to the activist and writer Tara Raghavir about how the current housing crisis is particularly hurting young people. According to Tara, America's housing crisis has reached emergency levels. A person working full-time, paid minimum wage, cannot afford a two-bedroom apartment in any county in the country. Think about that. In all but six states, even if minimum wage were $15 an hour, people would still have to work well over 40 hours a week to afford rent. Nearly half of all American renters spend over 30% of their income on housing. And more than 12 million people spend at least half their income on rent. Under these conditions, many, many people, especially poor folks and people of color, live one emergency away from an eviction. So I sat down with Tara to discuss this crisis and what to do about it. So Tara, you are a community organizer, and the issue that you largely focus on is housing. And in your Vice magazine piece, you explain that the housing crisis that we're in right now has reached emergency levels, and that in particular, it's really affecting young people. Can you just give us an overview of what's happening and how it's affecting young people in particular? It's important to understand that the crisis we face in 2018 is actually decades in the making and really centuries, if we're being real. The theft of land and property by a privileged few is, of course, deeply part of the American story. And that's left us here facing the housing crisis that we have in 2018, wherein you know millions of people in America are forced every day to choose between putting food on the table or keeping a roof over their heads. And the crisis has actually deepened and spread now beyond urban centers and into suburbs, small towns, and rural America. And a couple of the stats that I cite in my piece that I think are important to remember is that more than half of all Americans now spend over 30% of their income on housing. That is to say, for more than half of the people living in this country, their housing is unaffordable to them. And millions of Americans, as a result, are now experiencing homelessness on any given night, including a growing share of children, young adults, and individuals who are actually experiencing what we call chronic homelessness. And the stat that's kind of stopped me in my tracks in recent years is in 2018 and for the past few years, a person who's working full-time at minimum wage cannot afford a two-bedroom apartment in any county in America. And again, that's urban, suburban, and rural. And then in terms of the impact on young people, I think it's important that we not exceptionalize their experience. There are, of course, people, poor folks and communities of color who still remain the most impacted by the housing crisis. 
and young people are part of exacerbating the crisis as we rent and stay in cities longer. But there is this kind of other toll that the housing crisis is taking on young people these days. And in particular, one of the factors related to that that I point out in my piece is that the financial crisis from a decade ago created a context in which a whole generation of people had to take out loans for school because the big banks had devastated their family savings and their wealth. And no, those folks are saddled with in the order of $1.5 trillion in student debt. And that's going to be the big thing that kind of impacts their relationship to their housing for the coming decades. Yeah, it's interesting in your piece, you kind of pose this dynamic where young people are some of the main contributors right now in exacerbating the housing crisis and also some of the people who are most affected. How does that work? Yeah, I mean, I do think it is this kind of conundrum, right? I live in a neighborhood in Chicago called Logan Square, and I write about Logan Square in my piece. It's sort of rapidly gentrified in the past decade. And the generation of people that it's filled with now, or, you know, the gentrifiers who came in and now live in this neighborhood and have displaced 20,000 Latinx people who used to live here, it's not as though the people who are living here now, the young folks, are wealthy or are, you know, are themselves major developers or anything like that. For the most part, they're like teachers or artists or, you know, musicians. Um, and some of them are people with jobs downtown, but went to school and as a result are kind of saddled with this student debt that young people across the country are saddled with at this point. There isn't another option for them either. Uh, and I think there's a lot of weird guilt wrapped in there because a lot of the folks that I live around, for example, and I would include myself in this mix, are well aware of the displacement that their presence in a neighborhood like Logan Square causes, but also have no idea what to do with it. So there's this kind of horrible situation where gentrification and displacement have become these brunch topics, right, that we like everyone is always talking about, but no one has a uh, an answer for. No one is able to really complete the sentence and say, you know, I am complicit in this problem as a gentrifier, and therefore my role in solving it needs to be X. Right. And yet, despite what you're saying about how a lot of people living in neighborhoods like Logan Square who are gentrifiers are highly aware of their position and sort of the dynamics around housing and gentrification, you still hear from some people, this concept, this phrase that gentrification is inevitable. But it's very important to you in your piece to dispel this myth, and you do that. So why is the housing crisis not inevitable? And what are some of the main contributing factors that we can know, understand better, and mitigate? Yeah, I think actually one of the interview subjects that I feature in this piece, my friend and an organizer in this neighborhood in Chicago, Christian Diaz, puts it really well. You know, he doesn't beat around the bush. Christian says, the idea that gentrification is inevitable is bullshit. Like the idea that Christian's neighborhood where he grew up as a young Latinx person among many others in that community, um, many of whom have now been displaced by gentrification, he calls it what it is, right? It's bullshit that that's inevitable. It's what City Hall decided that this neighborhood needed to be. 
And I think we can tease out sort of the factors that contribute to gentrification from that. It's like City Hall and city halls across the country get to make real decisions about neighborhoods in their communities. Um, And those decisions are along the lines of, you know, which developers get approved for their projects, which developers get public financing for their projects, where does you know, the tax money from the city go in terms of where it's invested. And those decisions all have an impact on where gentrification happens, where services go, which neighborhoods receive nothing. It's all policy and the people in power, both in terms of people who are elected and in terms of people with money and resources, get to make real decisions about the growth of cities and which parts of cities grow. So the idea that growth by itself is inevitable, or that the gentrification of a particular neighborhood is inevitable, is exactly as Christian says, it's bullshit. Yeah, I think that that's a really important point. And another factor that you describe in your piece is what you call racial capitalism. And I just wanted you to kind of define that term for us and talk about that element of this issue. So racial capitalism acknowledges that racism and capitalism inherently depend on one another and are connected in a system wherein extraction and exploitation on the basis of race and class are inevitable and, in fact, part of the model. So when it comes to housing, racial capitalism is a system wherein land and economy have been hijacked by private interests that directly oppose, in some instances, the interests of the people over which the system kind of determines their entire lives. So the perpetrators of this scheme are also the people who are benefiting from it, of course. Those are developers, landlords, the real estate lobby. And then it's enabled and kind of further propped up and validated by a different class of folks like policymakers, politicians, decision makers. And the perpetrators and the enablers sometimes, uh, as I said, profit by keeping particular populations vulnerable and keeping them down and moving them out uh, when it's convenient for them or when they can turn a profit on the displacement of a whole community. Mm -hmm. And in your piece, you I'm not sure if it's you, actually. I can't remember if you said this or one of the activists that you interviewed, but this idea that choice is a privilege and too few people have that privilege to choose to stay in a neighborhood or choose to go if they want to. And you get into this idea that when you don't have the privilege to choose, you can get stuck. You can get stuck in harmful situations like abusive relationships, or it can limit what opportunities young people have for their futures if they want to go to school, but they're you know, stuck and they need to stay. There's all of these different scenarios that we see playing out in people's real lives relating to housing specifically. And I'm wondering if you could just give us an example from your piece of of what it actually looks like in someone's life. Absolutely. The side of this that's less talked about in the mainstream media is the side that's about the privilege to choose to go Uh, I think it's sort of more widely understood that it's difficult for many people these days to stay where they want to stay, whether that's in their house or in their community due to affordability concerns and the like. The conversation that I don't see talked about that much is the conversation around the choice to leave. And so there's a story in my piece that 
really struck me when I heard it from my interview subject. It's a person named Tao who lives now in Santa Cruz. And they had a couple instances of this condition of being stuck or limited in their choices related to their housing. So they grew up in a house where their identity was not respected. And they, at that point, had to leave, right? So they did not feel comfortable being their full self in their house, and they had to leave the house that they had grown up in. And Tao was really clear with me that they did not grow up in a really poor family. In fact, Tao's parents had sort of bought a house and paid it off in full by the time they were in high school. But Tao simply couldn't stay in the house. It wasn't a safe environment for them to be themselves. So they had to choose to leave and they had the privilege to choose to leave at that point. But what's happened since then is that Tao has now been a renter since leaving their family's home. And in one instance in particular, Tao was staying with an abusive partner and was stuck with that partner because they just didn't have options for an affordable and safe place to be outside of that partner's home. And as Tao puts it in the the piece and in a way that really moved me when I heard it was this condition made it so that Tao just really didn't feel like there were any other options and that they just kind of had to put up with some things or make some sacrifices in their life in order to keep a roof over their head. Mm -hmm. It's really useful to tell these human stories in relation to the housing crisis. Um, Sometimes we hear statistics and numbers and these big general trends that are happening. But when you hear stories like Tao's, it it changes the conversation, I think, in an important way. So thank you for telling not just Tao's story, but a number of stories in your piece that were all very different. The people that you interviewed had these stories, but they themselves are also housing organizers. They're activists. And everybody, including you in this piece, seemed to agree that while it's a complicated issue and solutions are challenging to fight for and to win, the solutions are clear, actually. So my question is, what are the solutions that you and your fellow organizers are proposing? What needs to happen? What needs to change in order to curb the housing crisis? Yeah, I mean, I would actually argue it's not that complicated at all. We know what works. Like in the early part of the 20th century, public housing was first built as a part of the New Deal, and it was built for white working class folks, because there weren't places for them to live in proximity to their jobs. And public housing was a respected, you know, totally normal place for people to live, for workers to live, for folks to raise their families until black and brown people started moving into public housing around the same time that white families were being moved to the suburbs and were being given loans so that they could buy homes. And at that point, public housing was disinvested from. Uh, A writer named Ben Austin writes a really good book called High Risers, which is about kind of the rise and fall of public housing. And it tells this really clear story about how the state in which we find public housing now is a direct result of a campaign of disinvestment. And that campaign was motivated by racial capitalism, this like racism and capitalism intertwined, wherein 
there was racism that caused the disinvestment once black and brown families moved out. And there was also the element of capitalism, which was that the private market saw opportunity to make profit if the public resource around housing was way limited. So all of that is to say, we know what the solution should look like because we've done them time and time again when they've benefited white folks, whether it was building public housing in the early part of the 20th century or subsidizing home loans in the later part of the 20th century or you know, any number of things that we did to ensure and protect and increase white wealth, leaving us in a state where you know, white wealth we can trace directly from these policies like the GI Bill, the growth of white wealth, and then the stagnation of the wealth of other communities in this country. So I think, you know, we tease this out in the piece, and you're right to say that I think all of us who are organizers working on this issue have a pretty clear analysis of what needs to happen. And a lot of it is just based on what we know is possible because it's been done for other groups in the past, uh, but we haven't talked about it or acknowledged it as, you know, a benefit or a public subsidy or whatever, when it's for white folks. But of course, when it's for anyone else, it's kind of stigmatized and disparaged as such. So I think in terms of solutions, it's like, we need a massive reinvestment, public reinvestment in housing. We need an expansion of public housing that's actually held publicly and by communities themselves. We need to get the private market out of housing. We need to decommodify it. Um, and I think this is really important and was a point that, you know, all three of my interview subjects felt very strongly about this idea that housing is a human right and should be treated as a public good. And it should not be treated by policy or by public conversation as a commodity, which it basically is right now. Your point that actually this issue is less complex than people say and just saying, oh, it's super complicated actually is kind of a cheap shot because we know it works, as you said. And and in that sense, it's simple. The history is there. We we understand the systems at play. However, it, it also history shows like winning those fights is complicated and requires real organizing like you and your peers are doing and requires real strategy because the powers at play, the people with money, the people with decision-making power, you know, create a difficult fight. I think in terms of solutions, things are a lot less complicated than they might seem. We just need to ask ourselves and take seriously the question about what it will take to guarantee that everyone in this country has a safe, accessible, truly affordable home. And I think the solutions kind of flow easily from that. But the mistake that we make is too often we're asking a different question to start the conversation about solutions. So we begin by asking a question like, what do we need to do to incentivize the private market to provide housing? And it's like, no, that's the wrong question. The starting question and kind of the North Star needs to be, what do we do to guarantee that everyone has a home? And then I think the solutions kind of easily flow from that. But you are right to point out that there's a distinction to be made between the kind of simplicity around imagining solutions versus the really hard work of organizing around this issue, which is so hard. Like I can't overemphasize that. And it's hard for a variety of reasons. It's hard because as you said, the powers that be 
that make decisions, that influence all of the policymakers, that dominate, you know, academic writing about this topic, et cetera, are all bought and sold by a class that has a distinct set of interests that's opposed to the communities that I work with. It's also complicated to organize around because the very people who need to be organized are inherently insecure in their housing, insecure in their communities. They're poor folks, right? And organizing poor folks around an issue and keeping them organized around that in movement is extremely difficult because the whole you know, situation of their lives is that they're dealing with this intense insecurity at every turn related to their housing, related to their jobs, related to their health, related to their kids' education. So organizing that community of folks is actually incredibly challenging. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want to sound naive in saying that the solutions are not complicated. I think the idea of the solutions is not complicated. The project of the organizing is intensely complicated. Yeah. I want to talk about one other element in your piece related to kind of your organizing philosophy, which says that the people who are most affected by this issue should be at the center of the conversation. That makes a lot of sense. And part of that message is that people with more privilege should be listening closely to those with less. But another element is you ask people to weaponize their privilege. And I wanted to get into that idea a little bit more. Can you give us some examples of how you've actually seen people leverage their privilege in a constructive way? Absolutely. I think there are great examples of this kind of all over the organizing work that I've been exposed to. I think one example of more privileged folks weaponizing their privilege in solidarity with the communities that are most impacted by the issue of housing is, for example, I attended a a march in May in New York City, and it was a big tenants march, and it was about Cuomo's housing crisis. So the crisis that the governor of New York State, Andrew Cuomo, has kind of created, overseen, and uh, enabled to some extent. And there were about a thousand people in the streets that day shutting down Fifth Avenue. And what was really powerful was to see that the people wearing vests and sort of standing on the outside of the tenants who were marching were, for the most part, like, you know, I I don't want to make assumptions, but they looked like young folks, perhaps privileged folks. I learned later that a lot of those people were organized through DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, and a couple of other groups uh, locally. And they were the kind of marshals for the protest, meaning that they were the folks like wearing the vests, again, on the outside of the uh, the marchers. And they were the ones on then the front lines to interact with, say, the law enforcement who were there to kind of supervise the march. And that's critical. That's actually really, really important. Like that type of role in a direct action is uh, absolutely central. And it's important that that role is taken on by someone with relative privilege. And that's privilege both in terms of like race, class, but it's also privilege in terms of like comfort interacting with law enforcement, right? Like a white person and even like me as a non-white person, like a role that I like to play in direct actions is the role of a police liaison because I have a degree of comfort with 
you know, authority figures and law enforcement and white folks in general, that some of the folks that I organize with just don't. And they shouldn't be in the position of having to engage with those people when they're putting their bodies on the line in other ways during an action. So I think that's sort of what we mean. I think it was actually Tao in the piece who said, like, people with privilege need to step back and need to listen to the directly impacted communities. And that's critical. I think that's like the first and most important step. And then to the extent that like, there is a real and genuine desire to show solidarity with those communities, there needs to be a, uh, an interrogation of one's privilege and how it can be weaponized in a way that's supportive of and not distracting from the goals of the people who are the most impacted. My last question is where you're at kind of in terms of your outlook as an organizer and where you and your peers, like, are you hopeful? Are you cynical? Are you angry? What's driving your work? So I think it's important to center and politicize anger in organizing work. And I certainly do in my own kind of practice of organizing. But I also think organizing is a project of hope inherently. And I am hopeful. I'm kind of constantly and eternally hopeful and optimistic because I'm lucky to get to interact with the people who are the most impacted by these really unjust systems, but are also the people who are the most incredible, inspiring dreamers I've ever met. Like when you talk to a person who lives in public housing, who's maybe like a multi-generational public housing resident about the type of housing that they deserve to live in and the conditions of that housing, there's no there's no question, there's no like limit to their ability to dream about what justice looks like for them. And that is such an intensely hopeful practice to kind of cultivate in organizing. It's part and parcel to what we do. And I think that makes it so that at the end of every day, like I'm filled with hope because the people that I'm running with, the people that like I'm in the struggle with know exactly what just looks like. They know exactly what the world as it should be or as it could be looks like. And that makes what we're doing together, you know, it superpowers what we're doing together and it makes it feel really tangible because we have that North Star. Thanks so much, Tara. Thank you, Sophie. Make sure to pick up a hard copy of Vice magazine or you can find Tara's full story at vice.com. That's it for now. Thanks so much for listening and tune in again on Friday for another Vice Guide to Right Now. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.